Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back and happy new year to you. It is Jay Scott and it is the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Getting going here in the month of January, starting the year off strong. Uh, we are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, a great network of music-related podcasts. So please check them out at pantheonpodcast.com where you can treat yourself to a whole bunch of music-related podcasts, including the official Metallica podcast that we have on the platform. So check that out as well as on social media platforms like Instagram, Threads, Twitter, and Facebook at Pantheon Pods. And you can do the same with the Hook Rocks on all three, of, all four of those platforms, I should say. And please don't forget to like and subscribe and follow wherever you podcast so you get the latest episodes right to your phone and some previous episodes that we've done. We just had Todd Damick Kearns 
on the show. He's getting ready to tour with Slash over in Europe. And we talked about that and some of the other projects that he's been involved with. And we ranked our top 25 albums of 2023 in two parts. So about four hours of discussion over almost 200 albums we talked about. Lots of lots of things. You know, we're music fans that are passionate about talking rock music and good music. And, you know, we're not some elitist rock and roll magazine that tells you what rock and roll is and wants to redefine everything. So we're just uh we are who we are. So I hope you enjoy all the albums that we discuss and all the albums that we ranked on the episode. Without further ado, we've got a repeat guest for you today. We've had Joe on a couple of times previous for his last two soul albums, but he's got a lot going on in 2024. And that individual is Mr. Joe Satriani. We're going to talk about the G3 tour, the the Steve Vai tour and the Sammy Hagar tour. What's going on, Joe? How are you? I'm good today. Good to talk to you again. Absolutely, man. Always good to see you. Always good to talk with you. Like I said, lots going on for you in the this year. I would say the coming year, but the coming year is already this year. <laughs> and lots of stuff, man. This is a big, busy year. I don't know if you've been this busy in a while. It's been a while, yeah. It's funny how, uh, you know, previous few years, there was a lot of inactivity. And then all of a sudden, we all got really busy. Uh, but these things happen, you know, they just... Uh, they just all of a sudden surprise you and, and uh, you got to be ready. I used to uh, tell uh, my students many years ago that you, as, as uh, funny as it might seem and, and somewhat embarrassing, you know, to the people around you, but you have to be prepared for good luck. And, uh, and, and I remember it sort of came true when uh, I was just barely barely succeeding at meeting the challenge of the success of surfing with the alien. That was such a surprise. And, you know, a few weeks into that very first tour where I was trying to figure out how to be a solo artist, you know, how to play instrumental rock on stage. You'd never done it before. All of a sudden I got an opportunity to play with Mick Jagger. And that, you know, that's one of those things that if you said, Hey, what if this happened? all your friends would laugh at you like number one, that'll never happen. And number two, if it did, he'd never hire you for sure. <laughs> but those things happen and you have to be ready for it. And so that's kind of like what happened here where, you know, I got a, a call from my son saying that, you know, he noticed that the G3 anniversary was coming up and he wanted to do a film about him growing up on tour. Cause that, that was his first tour when he turned four years old. And that snowballed into one thing. And then my agent said, Hey, people want you and Steve to keep playing. Uh, even if Eric's not available. So that, that turned into that tour. And then, uh, Sammy gave me a call and said, by the way, uh, I'd like you to do this thing. How about that? You know, it was like one of those things like, wow, this is like, it's really filling up. And, uh, and I still have a recording schedule, you know, so that's the other thing that I'm trying to figure out how to squeeze in there. So, um, but this is what you prepare for, you know, you, you prepare for these great, uh, moments of good luck, uh, when, when people reach out and say, they've got something fun to do, you know, you want to be ready for it. You're talking about the anniversary of G3 and, you know, let's begin with that tour because that's the first one that's going to be happening you know this is something that you started many years ago 
and it's kind of grown into more than ever you could have imagined touring with different guitarists all the time and doing all these things what's it like when you hear that it's the anniversary of it i think people more more are more likely human nature to kind of go into reflective mode right of like wow it's the anniversary and you start to think back of the time in between that first tour to now did you do that was that was that what it was like for you I think um, because we've always been uh, working on G3s, um, even though, it, you know, when, when we finish one, we're out of the, you know, the public mind there for, for a year or two or sometimes longer. But actually, we're busy planning the next one. It's just really hard to get people to step out of their normal gigs and plan to meet with us for six weeks, let's say, somewhere mm-hmm. in the world to, to play. It's actually a difficult thing. Um, and so it's always happening with me. So I, it wasn't as if I had forgotten about it. And then I was reminded, I kind of knew about it. And we always had, you know, four five, six different ideas about what might be cool and who might want to do it and who would want to play with who and that kind of thing. And, and how, you know, how can we sell it to the promoters? That's always the, the most difficult part of my job with G3 is, selling the idea to enough promoters to make it a tour, you know? And um, so I, I, I didn't, I didn't have that moment of reflection. Like, like you mentioned, like, Oh, wow. I haven't thought about this in 25 years, you know, because uh, we've done quite a few of them and, uh, and they're, and we're always working on them. But I think what, what came about once Eric, uh, Steve and myself started talking and just looking at each other, like on one of these Zoom calls, we realized how much time had passed. And we've been so busy doing other things that we we hadn't really thought about, you know, October 1996. We, we you know, we had, in fact, just moved on, you know, and and made more records and did more tours and Lots of things happen, but there we are looking at each other going, wow, we do look a little different <laughs> 25 plus years down the road. And uh, we do have different things that we want to play, which I think was what we got onto, you know, after the first few seconds, that's what we started talking about was music, which was great. So I was, uh, I guess I was happily, uh, surprised and and it it kind of confirmed my feeling that we had more music between the three of us to play that there was some stuff that you know not unfinished business but let's just say we were still eager to stand next to each other and see what would happen you mentioned that a lot of time has passed and that is true and with that time things do change you know people change evolution of the artist changes when you sit down with with Steve and Eric and you're going through this tour and you're talking, you you make that statement that it's been a while, a lot of time has passed. What's different about you and, and what do you think is different about Eric and Steve since then? Um, I, I mean, I can talk about the similarities um, a, a lot easier. I mean, because the the cool thing is, is that both Steve and Eric have maintained their unique voice. And if anything, it's gotten stronger, you know? So just talking from a, 
fan's perspective, it's just really cool to hear new Eric Johnson music and, and go like, ah, oh, there's, you know, there's the Eric I remember from mid eighties, you know, and, and I still, you know, you can still put on a brand new Steve I and go like, what the fuck was that? You know, <laughs> which is what he's always doing. Right. First track on the first new album is just like, what is that? You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, even though I kind of knew ahead of time, cause he was sending me, you know, clips, video clips of, of him playing the, the Hydra, you know, uh, it's still, it's still amazing. And that's, that was, you know, that's really great. And so, I mean, the, you know, what is different? I don't, I think it's just, you know, we've toured a lot since 96, both, uh, you know, in separate G3s and in just regular tours. I've been out with Eric quite a bit. We were together in, in 2019. We did the Hendrix tours together. Um, so it's not like we've been strangers. It's just that we've been doing different things and, and sort of uh, meeting up under different uh, circumstances. Um, so I don't, I don't see a whole lot of change other than obviously we've matured. <laughs> and so that's been a, that's been a big change. Um, and uh, I, I think uh, I'm just so happy we're still here and that those guys are still impressing me with, how unique they are, you know? I mean, I think that would, that's the worst thing, isn't it? When you're a fan and for some reason, after listening to an artist for a long time, you sense that their uniqueness is weakening. You know, they may get, be getting more successful. They may move into other businesses or whatever, but when you don't hear this, the same powerful artistic message, it's a bit of a letdown. And uh, so, and I certainly have not heard that, from Eric and Steve, they're, they're continuing to expand upon their world and try new things. Uh, and that's really great. What I noticed about all three uh, of you guys is what you just said is, you know, you listen to, you know, we'll use your music, the last two albums that you did, you know, cause that's what I've had you on the show for those, both those albums and being a fan of, of yours since surfing with the alien it, it seems to me that like everything is always on the table for you to, to go after. And I like it because it still sounds fresh. It's you. We could tell it's you, but it still sounds, it sounds modern. It sounds like the evolution of your artistry is still happening. And I like the fact, especially that when you approach a different album, you always try to do something different. You always try to mix it up. I mean, we, you know, the last two albums are, are prime examples of that. You, how you continue to do that. As you keep releasing music, though, does that become more difficult to find something that you maybe haven't done or twist a little something that maybe you've done before? I, I think, um, well, thank you. I mean, for just noticing that because <laughs> I, I do, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a typical artist in, in that I do force myself to get out of myself to not you know, form to, to, to rage against the conformity of my own likes. You know what I mean? It's like, you don't, you don't want to start to really think that what you're doing is, uh, is all that and that you should just keep doing it. It's just, it's, you know, I know from maybe from an economic point of view or a, 
music business point of view, it, it, it's pro, it might be prudent, but I think just the artist's mind is screw what I did before. I'm going to do something different now. You know, yeah. uh, you know, you never put on your own albums and sit there and go, Oh, that's good. You know, <laughs> it's like when you're done, you're just like, okay, and I got to move on to something else. So that's just the way I am. So, um, uh, it, it's, uh, I'm happy to hear that you notice that I keep trying. Um, and that leads me to, to do things that I would never do before. I think typical examples, like going back to shape-shifting, that was such a departure to go to Jim Scott's place to record with that band and that arrangement. Uh, but I never would have gotten songs like yesterday's yesterday without, you know, Jim and those guys and just, being in, in that funny warehouse and just letting things happen. I have to tell you about that. Cause I was just, I was actually listening to it the other day. Cause I was copying some files and ZZ's video came up. And I was re- remembering uh, how it was so difficult to get that video together and how much work ZZ did. Cause he had to hand draw everything, every frame of the animation. And um, so, but here's the funny thing. So I had this, song this acoustic song and i showed it to everyone and i said I, you know i really think this could be a fun thing i know it doesn't sound anything like me at all but how can we record it so this is very typical for an artist to to present it to a producer and say how do we pull this together you know how do we get everyone together so you you kind of have to let everyone voice their opinion so you know eric saying oh i got this hammered dulcimer and squeeze box I could add that, you know, and uh, I got Christopher Guest to add a mandolin. <laughs> I just asked him and he was like, yeah, sure. So, you know, send me, send me the session file, you know, and he came up with some great stuff. We, because we didn't give him any instruction, just kind of play whatever you want, Chris. Um, and so we're, we're sitting around one day and we're working on the track, getting ready and to, to add something to it. Um, and uh, I think, uh, Somebody, I forget who was doing it, but we were just mindlessly humming the song and someone was whistling it and we're listening to it. And then we start laughing about whistling songs. And then everyone takes out their phone and they're going, okay, when, when was the last hit single with the whistle? How many hit singles with whistles have there been over there? And we're just wasting time. You know, it's terrible phones in the studio. (laughs) Right. And, uh, so then that kind of just like faded over and we worked on the thing. I went back to the hotel at night and I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking, this is a really great idea. It's like we, this song could have whistling. It's like the stupidest idea and the greatest idea. Cause it kind of goes with the, the, the theme of the song that I hadn't really expressed to anybody yet. So uh, I go back to the studio the next morning and I, I tell everybody that I really want to do this whistling things like, how do you record whistles and are there people you can call? Cause we're basically, you know, 20 minutes outside of LA and I figure there's gotta be like the, the whistling dudes that you call, you know, who can whistle anything. And, uh, you know, Jim of course is like, now nah, we can do it. Yeah. We'll, we'll be able to do it. So we go out and we just hover around the drum mics and we're, we whistle a few times. We're laughing half the time. And Eric goes back upstairs and he puts, all the takes together and he calls us upstairs and he, and he goes, you're not going to believe this. And he, you know, he presses play and all of a sudden we hear this and it really, it, it really evoked like some sort of deep 
like uh, childhood memory, just hearing those whistles. And then we thought, well, this is really great. This is like, this has got nothing to do with a Joe Satriani album, but this is a really great moment <laughs> to hear ourselves, you know, whistling over Kenny's microphones. And now all of a sudden it sounds like a real whistle track, you know? And um, so then we brought it back downstairs and we put it into the track and we needed a noise. I, I think I told you about this like two years ago or something. Possibly. And, and yeah. I, I had a phone recording of insects going nuts uh, it, down in uh, body when we were uh, last in Southern Italy touring. And it was the afternoon we, we had uh, the afternoon off and we were coming back from a, a late lunch and it was siesta time. It was like a hundred degrees. T- the town was entirely asleep and we're walking past this park and there must've been a million bugs, you know, cicadas and everything. And they were just going nuts. It was just like that late afternoon bugs just making every kind of hissing, rubbing, vibrating, clicking noise. And so I just sat there and recorded it for a long time. And uh, so anyway, we're in the studio and I go, I got this sound. I got this recording. I think this is what we need. And sure enough, that's what we blended in with the whistling to cover up the fact that we were, the recording was really us whistling over Kenny's drum kit. <laughs> and we're not professional whistlers. Uh but then, you know, the, as the track comes together, it just became this beautiful thing. And uh, I, I, I remember, you know, when we started playing the album for, you know, management and record company, they get to that song and everyone's like, what's that? <laughs> like, there's no two hand tapping or sweet picking in that thing. What's going on? <laughs> you know, and um, but they've always felt like I do, which is keep pushing the envelope, keep trying to change uh, and let, let new ideas in, you know, and it, and it might be random. Like, as I described people just working, getting a track going and randomly whistling and humming the melody to the song and all of us suddenly going, Hey, you know, how do you find inspiration? Oh, it's all, it's all, it's all hard. It's all emotion. Uh, it's all getting a feeling, you know, like that song. I I was in this very room and I took out uh, an acoustic guitar and, uh, and I just had a feeling and, and, uh, and it was, a, it was, you know, going, thinking back, being a kid summertime. And, uh, and I just started playing this thing and almost laughing at myself for playing that style. But I, I learned many years ago not to judge myself when I'm improvising. It's one of the hardest things is not to be judgmental. Did I ever mention to you that, that I took a bebop lessons from Lenny Tristano? Do you know who no. he is? No. So <laughs> Lenny Tristano, uh, he, he passed away in 1980. He was a uh, 20th century jazz giant he was called the father of cool jazz he was the first guy to record rehearse perform totally freeform jazz it was a he was just a one of the craziest piano players you'd ever uh come across he uh was completely blind um some sort of trauma with, with his eyes um and I wound up taking lessons from him because I, I, I was spending uh, 
I think I lasted only one semester at this music college on Long Island called Five Towns. And as I was complaining to one of my classmates at the time, I said, look, I'm, I'm dropping out. I'm, I, I need like a master. I'm looking for like someone to teach me the secrets of music and, I, and I'm not going to learn it here. These teachers are bogus. I know more than them anyway. And he says, you got to go see Lenny. And I had no idea who Lenny Tristano was, you know, that I was into jazz, but not that deep into bebop at the time. So he said, go call, call Lenny. He lives in Queens, not too far from where I, I was living at the time. So, uh, of course, when I meet this guy, it's totally different because he was an older gentleman, obviously. He was completely blind. He dressed only in leotards. He kind of talked like this all the time. Like, hey, Joey, what the fuck are you doing? You know, that's the way he communicated to me. But he was kind and completely generous and the hardest teacher I had ever come across. Because if you made a mistake of any kind during the demonstration of the lesson that he gave you the previous week, the lesson would be over and you'd have to pay him and leave. And that was tough because I'm, I'm not that kind of a player. <laughs> you know, I'm all over the place. So that was the, that was the first thing to get over. But one of the, he taught me many things about how to be a musician. One, the thing that really stuck with me was about not judging yourself as you play. And he called it the subjunctive disease that kids in the suburbs had. They, they were always thinking about what they could have done, what they should have done, and what they would have done, and they never do what they want to do. And he said, musicians should only do what they want to do, only play the notes you want to play, and get out of this subjunctive idea, this way of life. And the only way to, to, to actually achieve that is to learn everything like completely, like no doubt where every note is, learn every scale, every harmony, everything, and be able to play it without making a mistake. And if, if you don't know what the next note is, well, then don't play it. But if you play something that's wrong, well, then it's your own fault. <laughs> you know, It was like a zen, bebop Zen lesson. Anyway, I learned that lesson early on about not being judgmental when you're playing and improvising, but I took it to heart and I use it every time that I'm writing because you can have a feeling about anything. Like if you have a stupid idea, like what if an alien came to earth and wanted and asked you to like do something really fun with him? He didn't want to suck your brain or destroy the earth or take all the water or anything like that. Right. He just wants to have some fun. And so you, you're, you're a surfer dude. So you take him surfing. That was the complete, like mental movie in my head for surfing with the alien. Now, any normal person would say, well, that's a dumb idea. Why write a song about that? <laughs> but uh, like I said, I, I learned early on, don't be judgmental. It's, it is an idea. It's any idea is as good as any other idea. Any feeling is as valid as any other feeling. And I'm a musician. I'm supposed to turn everything into music. So uh, I will write songs about real tragedies that happened to me. And I will write songs about the silliest things that pop into my head. And uh, if when I finish them, they turn out to be really interesting and good. Then I want, I want to put them on an album. And, and that's kind of like how I operate. With that lack of judgment, I mean, because artists can be their own worst critic, right? I mean, I, I've talked to many artists, they'll send me their album and they'll be like, 
what do you think? I'm like, oh, it sounds great. Uh, I don't know. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is like, this is absolutely incredible. <laughs> like they do that. They do that self judgment and they don't think they could, they, they could have done this better and that better. Yeah. But once you accept that and don't have any judgment about yourself, it kind of gives you that freedom that you mentioned, right? To do these ideas, whether it's something that's very meaningful and touching that you write or something silly that you just mentioned. And I think that's really how you become there's 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 a comfort in the artist once you have that right and and you can tell when an artist reaches that obviously there's 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 the comfort of to keep evolving but there's also a comfort of being who you are and once you have that lack of judgment it kind of gives you that freedom and i think i would imagine your creative process is much more of a wider palette than than artists that aren't that way uh, it could be, uh, you know, I can give you, you know, a real, real life anecdote would be that, um, when Steve and I were talking about, uh, doing this tour that's coming up, um, my manager said, you know, it might be a cool idea for you guys to record something and maybe release it before the tour. And I thought, oh, that's a cool idea, you know, out of nowhere. So, uh, Steve and I start talking about it and we're like, yeah, like, when are we ever going to do that? Because <laughs> we're like totally booked. And, uh, and he's way more busy, you know, than I am. I mean, it's just insane how many shows he's doing like every week. So I, I remember sitting down thinking, well, I'm just going to pick something that has everything to do with Steve and me, you know? And so immediately what came to mind was this place in Car Place, Long Island, uh, where we both went to school. We went to the Car Place Public High School. And the the, uh, the school is built on the grounds of the old Rock Camp Farm. This is a little bit of <laughs> Long Island history. Car Place is like two square miles, like right in the middle of Nassau County. Um, and uh, in Car Place, uh, there was a farm, a semi-rolling Hills, not, not, not that much. Um, but there was a kindergarten where we both went and there was a middle school called, uh, Rushmore to the, the, the uh, kindergarten was called Cherry Lane. And then there's Rushmore, which is like a middle school kind of thing. And then the high school, which is a little bit lower. Uh, and, um, I guess during that high school period where we were both playing guitar, uh, you know, I was, I had a band with my high school buddies and, uh, Steve, uh, once he started taking lessons from me, started a band with my lead singer's younger brother. So we were both, you know, it was pretty funny. We we're all just crazy rockers, you know. And there was this place in the Rushmore School parking lot that overlooked uh, some uh, poorly kept lacrosse fields, baseball fields and stuff like that. Typical high school, everything falling apart. And there's the down below was the cherry lane kindergarten and the, 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 the last patch of the rock camp farm. And then way off to the left, the, the high school and the football field. And it kind of, the parking lot was kind of set up a bit. And then this, there was this big depression that went down for the, for the first fields there kind of unplayable because it was kind of, it wasn't flat enough. So, you know, what we used to hang out and do all sorts of bad things. So it'd be like, you know, 3.30 in the morning and we'd be hanging out there doing stuff we shouldn't be doing. And we started to uh, 
it was like a therapy place for all of us to go to, to hang out. That's kind of like what it is really. I mean, you think you're being dangerous hanging out late at night with your friends, smoking and drinking and doing all kinds of stuff, but actually it's a kind of a group therapy, isn't it? You know? And, uh, I, uh, started calling it the sea of emotion. And I remember introducing it to Steve when he was a young teenager saying, this is a great place to come to, you know, to uh, talk about your feelings and, and ask questions of your friends and just work things out and be creative and everything. And so that depression in the, you know, the, the hill as it went down into those fields became the sea of emotion for us. So when I started uh, the idea that I'd write some music for Steve and I to play, I thought, well, that's definitely what I have to write about. I have to, I have to borrow from my memory, all the things that we thought were cool as young guitar players dreaming that we were going to be rock stars at some point in our lives. And it was a real uh, inspiration for me to do that, just to use that and not to worry about anything else. You know, like you were talking about the confidence of being free to, you know, create whatever you want. Um, and, I, and I never entered my mind that there would, somebody would, a critique it, not knowing that I, again, you can't judge yourself in a moment of creativity. It's just the worst thing. So you just let it go. So I just put all these things together and I, I knew that as I was writing it, that uh, how much fun it would be to stand next to Steve on stage and play these songs and how I knew that I was borrowing from that guitar player that we grew up listening to, like Jimmy Page or something, and how I was quoting myself and that I was leaving spaces for uh, Steve to quote himself if he felt like doing that as part of pulling it together, because that's these two songs are unusual in in that theme. In other words, we're purposely looking back and trying to get people to understand this place we used to go to. And, uh, and because it was a long time ago, I have to kind of quote musically those days, so to speak, you know, um, I think that, that, you know, a young listener would listen to it and they wouldn't get any of these references, but somebody my age, perhaps who plays guitar would go, Oh, I remember that riff. <laughs> that's like that's so 1973 you know <laughs> uh, and that would make me happy if they would notice that <laughs> that's that's a very interesting story that's um that's such a um a great avenue to create on like you know this this hill that meant so much to your upbringing and, and, and you guys both were part of that and to kind of have that connection with that and then create a a song in regards to that. That's, that's wonderful. That's, that's, that's a, that's a great path to go down. Yeah, it's, it's been fun, you know, and, and the way that we've had to do it um, has meant that we've had to let go, you know, like think of it this way. Steve is an amazing producer, but he couldn't obviously produce these tracks because of how, the, the way the, our schedules are right now, he just was like, okay, we've never done this before. I guess, you know, if you've sent me these songs, so I guess that's where we're going and we're starting here. And I called uh, Eric Codia, my, my uh, uh, 
sort of a co-conspirator in lots of records <laughs> since uh, since way back. Actually, he edited the first uh, G3 uh, concert that we put out on DVD. So I've known Eric a long time. Great musician, fantastic uh, engineer and and producer. And so I said, look, I've written these songs. They're really funny. And I told him the whole story. And I said, Steve's going to add something to it. And we have no idea what. We just have to leave lots of space for him to do whatever he wants. But because I'm so busy and Steve's so busy, you're going to be the the central guy. And so I sent him the session files with all my all my guitar parts on them and, and the sort of drum machine guide track. And he went and he got Matt Cameron to play drums, Matt Bissonette to play bass. He produced those sessions. He's been pulling it all together. He started to add his instruments to it and uh, different than what I ever would have thought of, you know. And uh, I think as of yesterday, he sent the tracks off to Steve because Steve just returned from his Vi Academy. Uh, so we'll see what happens this week <laughs> when uh, Maestro Vi gets a hold of these tracks and turns them upside down <laughs> and sideways. You know, I can't wait, really. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds great. I can't wait either. I can't wait to hear it. Um, moving to the Sammy tour. Um, yeah. that's the, that's the, the one that's been getting all the publicity and all the, all the, all the news, especially with the Howard Stern show and everything. Um, what's it like? What was it like for you reconnecting with Sammy and Michael and Jason? Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, 
you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Oh, that's great. I mean, you know, like um, Sammy and I are talking all the time. uh, So we see each other quite a bit. Um, And uh, but I hadn't played with those guys in a while. And I I don't think I'd ever really uh, I think maybe twice. I mean, Jason played with the very beginning chicken foot for a second one afternoon. And then I think we played a song or two at a live show somewhere a couple of years ago. But I haven't done a lot of playing with Jason, even though I've known him longer than I've known, you know, Sammy and Mike. Um, so it was just really great. It was unfortunate that, you know, we were Jason and I were playing through little digital things. We weren't playing through our usual, you know, there was not a real drum kit and a real amplifier to play through where we had time to rehearse or anything. So we were just kind of winging it. Um, but it was so much fun to to reconnect with them. It was a crazy, dangerous idea to try to, you know, wing something like that. (laughs) You know, normally it would be fine, but um, it's, you know, Eddie is uh, so well loved that uh, the fans are pretty rabid, you know, and if they don't hear it exactly, they want to hear it the way they want to hear it. They might get a little upset. Um, but we have lots of time to uh, to work on all that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, I mean, the, the way that it came together was pretty funny because I'd been talking to to Dave and Alex, you know, for almost two years. And, and it, it, it really almost took off and then it didn't. And I kind of put it behind me. And I, I had these two uh, EVH guitars and, you know, over a year ago, I, I eventually just put him back in the cases. And I thought this, what a crazy idea to try to play Eddie's stuff, you know, and I'd forgotten about it until Sammy called me. And then, but I guess the, the idea behind the tour was more attractive to me because he said, well, we're going to do, it really is a Sammy Hagar legacy tour. And there is, go, you know, it, we're going to do, I don't know, 15 Van Halen songs, but there's going to be chicken foot. There's going to be Montrose. There's going to be Sammy Hagar, uh, solo material and even a couple of my songs in there. So I thought, okay, this is more, uh, more normal. You know what I mean? It's not like just the focus on, uh, the legacy of, of Eddie, you know, which is just like an impossible task, you know? Um, Yes, I remember telling Alex many, you know, a few years ago, I said, you know, any sane guitar player would hang up right now. (laughs) If he got a call saying, would you like to, you know, represent Eddie Van Halen in a Van Halen tour, you know? Uh, And uh, so, but there I was again, and I thought, oh, you know, there's a certain amount of naivete, I think, that works in a situation like this, because you have to go into it uh thinking that everybody knows there's no way to replace Eddie Van Halen. So, um, you know, there's, you, you, everyone gets, needs to get some slack cut for them. <laughs> so um, I think the hardest thing, just from a guitarist point of view is the fact that uh, those guys tune to D standard and I'm not used to that. And uh, you know, um, 
for people who don't play guitar, that's pretty low. So the normal strings would get kind of floppy. So I, I had to use a set of 11s uh to try to make up to keep the strings you know in tune at that low uh tuning uh and i found that difficult i didn't you know it was six in the morning <laughs> and i'm not a morning person uh and i got most of it but there were a couple of things that i just thought man these strings are too big and fat and i can't push them around and they're not bright enough and you know eddie played thin strings comparatively you know tuned to 440 and then slightly went to E flat, but he still played nines, uh, which is pretty skinny sounding. And uh, it's just really uh, so different from how, from a technical point of view, how I progressed with just my strings and my sound, because I don't have a singer, you know, so I play melodies. So, um, my my guitar sound is focused on getting all the high notes to sound really fat, you know. So I sacrificed some of that wild, skinny, screaming kind of thing that a normal lead guitar player would have for their eight bars of screaming solo, you know. Because usually they're playing rhythm most of the time, and then they kind of shred for a bit, and then they go back to rhythm. Uh, of course, Eddie's approach is very different. He was always the spotlight, you know what I mean? His guitar parts were always the spotlight and, uh, and his solos were short. They were short, but super expressive, you know? Um, and again, it was really when I picked up my own guitars and my own rig and I started, you know, trying the tapping, I realized, well, there's no harmonics here. Everything's too fat sounding, you know? And, uh, so, uh, that's why I was trying to figure out, I got to, you know, I have to somehow step out of my normal guitar, normal strings, normal amplifier, and learn how to play like this with that gear. And that's that has been a technical challenge, let me tell you. It's because, the, you know, what he wound up playing eventually, like if you listen to the Live at the Tokyo Dome, it bears no resemblance to Live Without a Net or, you know, the first six albums nothing it doesn't sound anything like it and uh and that kind of i and i i've got two of those amps right here as a matter of fact and um they're fun and they're great and if i was a young modern player i probably just use those you know but um it's i it's difficult you know i find it the sound isn't quite right if you're going to play jamie's crying or something like that, you know, just doesn't, it doesn't have that old funky Marshall sound, you know? Um, so anyway, I, um, yeah, I've got, uh, I've been working, uh, with Delana at uh, third power, trying to come up with an amp that is going to truly capture that magic and then add a little bit more to it because I need it. Cause I'm not Eddie. <laughs> well, I guess that's the next question is, you know, with this tour, you're you're playing mostly Eddie's music, and and like most guitar players, there was a moment where you were very influenced by him. But it's not like you play Eddie all the all the time, and not like you know you're you're doing your own thing. Revisiting all that old material and all that you know that from Sammy's and from David's era, 
And then also, like you said, the pressure of the fans that you got to play it right. You know, what's that like? What's that whole headspace for you? Like doing both, revisiting his music and then knowing what the fans expectation is. Yeah, I, I, I like it. I mean, I like it. And because I'm a big fan myself and when I see somebody not do it right or be cavalier about it, it kind of bothers me. And when I see people do it right, I want to let everybody know who they are, you know, like when I remember back when Alex was asking me about, you know, doing that first idea of the tour, um, I went online and I thought, boy, you know, I I don't know how to play any of this stuff. I purposely have avoided it. So I wouldn't steal anything from Eddie. You know, I've just been just trying to develop my own thing. And I thought, well, how does he do it? Does anybody know how to do it? And I came across guys like Jean-Michel Sutcliffe, a British guitar player. And I, I just couldn't believe how close he got. I just couldn't believe it. It was just like, wow, this guy really sounds like, like if you closed your eyes and you said, this is Eddie from, you know, 78 or something like that, you know, playing in the studio, I'd go, yeah, that sounds exactly like him. And what I noticed right away was how different I was and how I was never going to get there because I've spent too many decades trying to be Joe, which was going in the, in the other direction. Now I explained this to, to Dave and Alex and I said, this is going to be really hard. So don't expect me to do this tour like, you know, next month or something. I said, it's going to take me months to learn a couple of things without getting too technical on you guys. There are certain things that Eddie does that just not in my lexicon. So I'm just going to have to start practicing it like a student would, you know, or like some of these guys that you see uh, play online. Um, They just have, they've taken the time to learn the notes. Exactly. I was watching something. uh, Nilly Brosh is really great. She's got all the Van Halen stuff down note for note. And, uh, I, it's just not in my nature to do that, to sit down and to, to study somebody else's solo and learn it note for note. You know what I mean? Um, I kind of figure if, if somebody said to Eddie, Hey, could you, you know, could you learn flying in a blue dream? He'd be like, yeah, but I'm not going to play it like Satriani, you know, <laughs> that's kind of like, I suppose at some point, after working so hard at trying to be original, it's like you lose the patience to try to copy somebody exactly. However, I'm going to temper that with the fact that I'm sitting in the audience just like everybody else, and I want to hear it done right. So I'm, I'm going to do my homework. I'm get, I have people working on the guitarist. I have somebody designing a new amp, and I'm slowly practicing. If you could see my big wall over there, you'd see all the notes I have written which basically is like Joe remember to practice this every day. <laughs> so well, you mentioned last you know interview because it was it was close to when Eddie had first passed. Um and we talked about the hardest song to play. And we know Mean Street is very difficult, especially with the slapping in the beginning and all that stuff. But you mentioned I'm the one as being yes very difficult because of that right hand it's got to be so like um it's it's just very repetitive it is so good it is wow uh eddie could pick with a swing that i have to say i think it's unmatched i don't i just never heard anybody write songs like that where it was so natural for them to play that way 
and to propel the song. Now he, he, that's what he did in the band. He propelled the songs, you know, like Mike and Alex held the songs together, but Eddie propelled the song. He always led the charge, you know, and whether it's David Lee Roth, who's kind of like a jazz singer or Sammy Hagar is like a soul singer. They have different ways of approaching their, the content and how they add, you know, but Eddie was always in front. And that's, uh, you know, I was explaining, I think I explained this on the Stern show or something where, you know, I'd spent decades learning how to play behind the beat because that's, I'm the one playing the melody. And so when I started to learn the Eddie stuff, I realized you ha- you have to forget about that, Joe. <laughs> you have to be kind of not ahead in a bad way, but you have to be right there in front as the leader. And it, that the nature of that was just like not in my playing anymore. I haven't been doing that because I always wait for the band to come in and then I, I play the sexy melody, you know. Uh, and it takes practice just like it took, you know, Eddie years to be that sort of guy in front. It's taken me many years, decades to learn how to sit back properly, you know, so that you can play beautiful melodies, you know make things sound like they're soaring, you know? Um, but yeah, I'm the one ice cream man, those early ones, he was really on top of it like that. And it was, I mean, even if you just take a, uh, you clock the tempo of the beginning of I, I'm the one when Eddie starts it. And then when Alex comes in, there's already a big difference there. You know, it already, there's like, whoa, you know, you can tell Alex is like saying, come on now, Eddie, come on, <laughs> let's, let's, let's make it sit. You know? Uh, but that's the beauty of it. And, and besides the fact that Eddie was just a total genius and, and amazing in every way, he had these things that are, that I find the hardest because things like mean streets, you know, it's, a, it's, you, you do have to learn how to play it. Yes. Uh, however, Part of it is the equipment is just having the right EQ. So the harmonics pop out and you either have it or you don't, you know, Um, but I'm the one that's pure physical. That doesn't, you know, that's something Eddie had in his hands, in his heart and soul. He just was so committed to making that music, you know? And I, I think ultimately, if you're, if it's not coming from inside, it's going to be really hard for you to make your fingers do it. You know what I mean? On like a, on a regular basis, you might be able to fake it once or do it for a recording or something. Uh, and, and that's a really big difference. And, and over the last few years, I, you know, really tried to find every live clip of Eddie playing. And, uh, there, there is no, discrepancy when it comes to that those amazing feats of talent that he had he he always had and it was it was like in every live show even the shows where he was struggling you know with his lifestyle whatever he was still really brilliant because it was he was committed to to giving that to the audience it was really uh, you, you know beautiful to see heartbreaking you know when he was going through some hard times but he always delivered and 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 that's you know i think people should 
should recognize the fact that there's this, uh, that there was something special about him because he had that music inside. He had the drive to force his body to learn how to do it. And his body had the talent to make it happen. And he did it for us. He gave us like so much amazing guitar playing that we have. Uh, and, th- and that's amazing. You know, life is tough. And for someone to, to give you so much in this short amount of time, I think is really amazing. So I, I I'm always struck by that. Every time I start to play for a second, you know, I'll reflect on that. And it's, yeah, it's, it's something you got to think about that. I think when it's not just learning the notes or, you know, looking at the tablature, the manuscript, uh, that that's something extra that he put into it, allowed him to improvise it every time he played. And, I think if I was uh, giving a lesson on it, I'd say, well, here's, here's a typical example. Like for this G3 tour, uh, you know, my son is making a documentary about the whole uh, tour. The fact that he turned four just a couple of days before the very first G3 tour. And that was the first tour that we took him on. When he turned four, we decided he's old enough to go on the road. So it led to a life on the road and he got this, hang out with his parents and see what they did all day long. <laughs> and, uh, and he got, he grew up, you know, with Steve Vai and Robert Fripp and Katie Wynn Shepard and everybody else. He was always around uh, being a kid. Uh, so uh, we started uh, working on this documentary and he's interviewed like almost a hundred guitar players uh, about just guitar playing in general, what it means to them, what it means to him. And he is going to be getting on stage to play Summer Song with us. Um, The last two concerts are going to be uh, at the Orpheum in Los Angeles. That'll be filmed. We're making a a live uh, G3 album as well for uh, ear music. But when we were just hanging out playing uh, last week, I said to him, you know, uh, know, because he's a really good guitar player, but he has no... uh, designs on getting into the music industry he's much smarter than that (laughs) uh but i was just you know saying like you know uh you should learn like two or three ways of doing the exact same part because you never know what's going to happen and how you're going to feel and you just you know and summer song has got for rhythm guitar players a lot of repetition going on but there's a discipline to it and you might want to know how to do the main riff in like three different places. And that way, if something feels uncomfortable and you're in front of the audience playing with the band, you, you know, you can just switch to that other one with ease and then go back to the, you know, idea one, idea two, something like that. Um, and, uh, and that idea, I think I saw also, um, almost the way you see Eddie play sometimes on some of the live clips where you see him just playing stuff in so many different ways. Uh, I was watching, I was watching, uh, what was the song? Uh, oh, I think it was 5150. Um, and uh, he, there's a section of it uh, d- during the chorus. And he played the uh, descending G harp arpeggio, uh, differently each time. And then sometimes he just made it a D arpeggio instead. <laughs> and I remember it was after I had learned it 
as as on the album. And then I thought, I wonder how he does it live, you know. And of course, I'm like, of course, he he did it like six different ways within one, you know, performance because he that's the way he is. He's like he's in control. He's thinking it's my song. I can kind of play this part any any way I want, you know. Again, this adds to the brilliant musicianship that he had and why we love listening to him because he just always gave us a little extra, <laughs> a little different version of a song we know from the album. He always thought I can improve upon that, whether it's something really big in the song or just some little part like that little arpeggio that I was talking about, you know? Uh, and it's important to know that as you go out to do a tribute, just to, like to relax and, figure i can do it a couple of different ways because that's the way eddie used to do it you know as as we end here um last question which is about the sammy tour relates to the sammy tour why did the idea with david and alex not push through or not come through like the idea that sammy had to do this best of both worlds tour what's in your opinion what happened That's tough. I, I don't, um, I, I, you know, I didn't know Eddie and I, and I don't know the family and I, I, I don't think I'll ever really understand David Lee Roth. I thought I really understood Alex. I, and I think I do. I, I really think I understand his point of view or where he's coming from. So I tend to think that the real difference here is that, um, Sammy has a, a real sort of inclusive way of looking at life. And, and he, he doesn't like, uh, he doesn't, uh, he, he notices when there's conflict that is getting in the way of doing something good and he'll try to fix it, you know? So as a result, he, you know, it's just like, he says, yeah, we're going to do ain't talking about love. I, I know it's not my song, but that's cool. Now you ask David Lee Roth, hey, are you gonna do 5150? Of course he's never gonna do it, you know. Uh so there's a big difference there is that you have one guy who's very flexible because he's thinking about the fans, and then you have another guy who I don't know why he's Dave is so inflexible on on a couple of subjects. I really don't, because I don't I don't know him. You know what I mean? I should ask Steve about it. I mean Steve knows him, but I it I can't say that I really know him. I, I felt that Alex really wanted to do it and he really, his heart was pure in its intention. Um, but I, I don't know, uh, about Dave. I know that Sammy and Mike, their intentions are pure. They really do want to celebrate the music and they're willing to just like mend any fence to make it happen on stage. Um, and, you know, this is, they're the original guys, you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's more than just a tour, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and you feel it when you're standing next to uh, Sammy and Mike, you know, you, there's this an immense amount of power and love with the two of them and playing those songs and, and uh, people n- they want to experience it and, and they should be able to experience it. So I would hope at some point that uh, they figure it out, you know, 
and maybe they'll, maybe they'll find, you know, I mean, basically Wolfgang is the guy to do it. You know, he's the guy to do any tribute there is. The rest of us are just going to be copying the album <laughs> as close as we can, but it doesn't, it'll just, you know, it'll be fodder for the guitar, uh, army out there to criticize like, well, you should have done it like this and he could have done it like that. And she should have done it like this. And, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, because we're, we're not Eddie and we're, we're not Wolfgang and, you know, so, uh, it's taken a while for me to get the really good perspective on it, but I do think that uh, we should all just kind of leave that alone and let them figure it out. You know, it it really is up to, I think Wolfgang and his uncle Alex to figure this out. And, um, but in the meantime, you know, this, this tour with Sam and Mike is really a beautiful thing. And, and as I'm, I'm staring at the immense set list that's up on my wall over there, it is daunting for me because I'm going to be really busy right up until that thing, you know, the rehearsal period starts. And so, um, yeah, I'm a little nervous about it, but I've, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm doing my homework and, and I'm going to be hitting the stage ready to, to uh, shred, you know, <laughs> I will tell you the perspectives from my generation and my son's generation um, for someone that grew up with that music, I can't wait to hear it again, you know, and you playing and Sammy up there and Michael and Jason, it's going to be wonderful. Uh, my son's perspective, who he just finished his first semester at college, he's going to be 19 in a couple of weeks. I saw, I took him to see Sammy, uh, in the circle a couple of years ago, uh, outside of Chicago. And we got back in the car. I didn't expect him to think this way or to have this perspective, but he's like, it's like, dad. I just saw two members from Van Halen and one original member. And I looked at them. I, I didn't, I, my, my headspace was completely different, right? Like, like I was like enjoying the music and, and seeing them up on stage and playing. He's like, I can't believe I got to see two members that were in Van Halen. <laughs> and that, because obviously Van Halen in its original form or with the Sammy, uh, you know, saying he can't tour anymore because Eddie's not there as, as a Van Halen entity for him to think that way. And to have that perspective. I imagine. A lot of young people that age are looking forward to hearing these songs being played because they're never going to get a chance to hear them live. And yes. I think it's important, I think, for that generation to hear that stuff. Oh, it is. It is. And, you know, the way Sam and Mike do those songs, no one does them like them. Nobody has that, that whatever, that Van Halen mojo like them. You know, only the guys in Van Halen had that. And that's all there is to it, you know? And so they're, they're, like I said, they're part of the OG group, you know, <laughs> that, that made that happen. So they bring that on stage all the time. It's really, you can really feel it when you play with them. And, uh, and, you know, and having Jason, like last night I was watching, uh, they were releasing that, um, uh, the Led Zeppelin reunion from 2007. I was just having such a great time watching Jason play. That is really something that's because Jason's been playing with Sam for quite a while now. And they've, they've got this great connection, uh, which I think is really important. Sam has been looking for that for a long time. And, um, and, uh, and Jason really is a huge fan uh, of Alex. So um, it's really a cool group. It really is. I mean, I, I really, 
I know I've got a lot of things to do before we step into a rehearsal room finally to have our first rehearsal, but that's going to be great to, to be able to connect finally on those, uh, on, you know, on that musician's level uh, with Jason and Mike, just as a, as a rhythm section for Sam and to give him the, the, the music that he needs to be able to sing those songs uh, the way we know that only he can do, you know? So yeah, it's going to be a great tour. Joe, as always, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you, man, and uh, can't wait to see you on stage when you come through the Chicago area once again, and uh, I appreciate the time. Thank you. It's great to talk to you. Best of luck with those eyes. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate it very much. Thanks again. I do appreciate it. Once again, everyone, that's Joe Satriani. All the information on all the tours he's doing will be in the show notes. So look that up, check out those links, get tickets so you can go see. It's going to be a great time seeing them with G3, seeing with Steve Vai, and of course with Sammy Hagar and Michael Anthony and Jason Bonham. So check all that out, and thank you for tuning in once again. Take care of each other, stay safe. Remember, smile a little bit more in 2024. We'll talk soon. Thanks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.